As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Soccer Show and our latest round of listener questions. On today's show, we'll be adding a game changer from the past to the USMNT. We'll talk about game rituals and we'll talk about why players don't become referees. And also, we'll discuss elite kit and crest combos. Mm-mm. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, a man who deserves at least as much fanfare as Paolo Dybala received upon his unveiling in Rome, Joe Lowry. Hello to you, sir. First of all, Ryan, I would I would love that slash maybe be scared and frightened by that because it would feel really uh, feel very surprising. Those videos were insane, absolutely insane. You, Ryan, you picked the worst time seriously to go on on a little bit of vacation and not be in Rome because that means you missed all the fanfare around Paulo Dybala. You could have been one of those ten thousand people holding up cool light up things and and yelling and cheering. That could have been you, Ryan Bailey. Yeah, very exciting times, Joe, in Rome, as you say, outside the Palazzo della Civiltà, which I looked it up. I didn't know where it was. It's about 10 miles south of the Stadio Olimpico. It's not really in the city centre. So they drew, according to the reports, Joe, between 10 and 20,000 people. Um, and it had like a day's notice to get that thing together. And it looked like a rock show, basically, didn't Unreal. it? Unreal. showing up with the lights and everything. Very impressive for a free transfer, I'd say, Joe. It looked like it looked like the the fans that celebrated winning the Turkish Super League this past year, and those yeah. videos went around. It didn't look exactly like that. I think that that video from Turkey was a little bit more surreal. But man, I mean, they were stoked about Paulo Dybala, and you can see maybe how Roma was able to entice him a little bit into joining that team because it's not as if they're really title contenders, at least in my mind, in Serie A right now. I think they have holes in their squad relative to certainly Inter and, and potentially even Juve and AC Milan as well. But man, the environment and the atmosphere there is is incredible. And that was a really, it, it still was a surreal moment to watch on Twitter as it was circulating. I, I really couldn't believe it, Ryan. That was wild. Yeah, the Romans, Joe, they do now have to get on a put, put on a good atmosphere. Yeah. Like uh, when you go to a game, they're waving the flags, they're cheering the whole way through. I, th- I went to um, Roma Inter this season. I think Roma were down 3-0 after half an hour. And the fans were just with it the whole time. There was no negativity. It was very, very impressive. Uh, and showing up like this for this kind of event is incredible. Like the UEFA Conference League uh, um, from a few months ago, I went out into Rome to watch that game. And I drove home. It was about a 30-minute drive back. And just people out. It was a Wednesday evening. Just people out with their flags. They were honking their horns. It was like 11 p.m. in these like suburban streets. And people were going crazy, Joe. It was it was pretty pretty wonderful to see. So I'm, I'm well, looking forward to... Um, uh, Jose Mourinho's tattoo unveiling. I think they're I was doing it at the say, same venue. They're going to have a, a, an even bigger party, 30,000 people for that. Of course they're turned up for the Europa Conference League final, Ryan. I mean, there's no other option. You have to. It's the biggest trophy, right? It, it's the Jose Mourinho doesn't get a tattoo for nothing. Of course they're going to turn up for that. Come on. Yeah, I think um, when it comes to Roma and titles, it's what my mother used to say. You get what you get and you don't get upset. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is absolutely true. That is absolutely true. Joe, we are an awesome twosome today. No Taylor and Graham today. Graham is at 
a wedding, we're told. Um, I believe it's like a Scottish wedding, so, you know, some firm handshakes, nobody looking each other right. in the eye and then get very yep. drunk, I think is the order of the day. Does that sound good yeah, to you? I, yeah, Ho- Hope Graham's having a good time watching that unfold and giving out some, some handshakes of his own. Yeah, that's right. And Taylor's not with us. He's actually buying a home at the moment. A listener will give out his full address, uh, zip code and details at the end of the show. So stick around for that one. Uh, Before we get to listen to questions, Joe, a couple of bits of uh, MLS news I'd like to go through with you. Or lack of MLS news. Luis Suarez being linked with LAFC Mm. over the past couple of days as we record. Uh, He had the chance to reunite with his old friend Giorgio Chiellini. Uh, what were your thoughts on that one? If it would have gone down, it didn't go down, of course, but it would have, we'd have uh, doubled the terrible people count on that team at least, wouldn't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't, I can't really think of many other ways to get Ryan Bailey to like LAFC <laughs> less than that. So in that way, maybe it would have been the right thing to do. I, I would have been all for this move of not even specifically LAFC signing Luis Suarez, but someone signing Luis Suarez from Major League Soccer. I think the league is at the stage now where they can justify signing these players that are going to bring interest to the league while also very much exporting talent and developing talent and, and acting as a middle a middle league between some some places in South America and even some lower level European leagues and then back to Europe. We've seen that a handful of times and, and we're going to see it more and more going forward. So signing players like Chiellini, signing players like Bale, signing players like Luis Suarez shouldn't be uh, impossible for the league at this point, or at least they should be interested in doing that kind of thing. By all accounts, it's difficult to know how much LAFC were ever really interested. A lot of this just started from Taylor Twelman retweeting something. He quote tweeted it just with the hashtag LAFC on a Luis Suarez post or someone reporting about him from South America. I don't remember what it was at this point, but that started a whole set of, of rumors and things coming from that. And that never really ended up happening. Apparently, Seattle has had his discovery rights, which just no one wants to hear me talk about. So we didn't end up getting to see Luis Suarez in MLS. I would have been all for it. I think adding him to LAFC would have been really interesting. I think from a balance perspective, it, it maybe is a, a good thing for LAFC that they didn't sign him, just because having to carry Suarez and Bale and Carlos Vela as maybe your first choice front three for big games puts a whole lot of stress on literally everyone else on the field. And I think it might be a good thing that they have now still a spot for Chicho Arango or someone else in that front three who can do at least a little bit of running. I know Chirondolo isn't thrilled with Arango's defensive work, but still... It would have been fascinating, but maybe a good thing for Steve Turandolo that that didn't end up happening. Yeah. Joe, maybe one day you can sit me down, stare me in the eyes, and tell me how LAFC can do all these moves. <laughs> um, but we'll get to that another day. Yeah. Um, something else I wanted to draw attention to, MLS-related, is from backheel.com. I don't know if you're aware of that outlet, Joe, but they had an article called Why Won't hmm. Your Team Win MLS Cup by J. Sam Jones. <laughs> um, some very good uh, entries for every single MLS team. My favorite, Joe, was Chicago Fire's uh, reason to be sad, you're the Chicago Fire. <laughs> yeah, Sam Sam is so good at, at this kind of piece. He's, he's a really great writer in general. And so having him go through and kind of just get to, to judge and hate on teams a little bit in, in good fun. This is all in good fun, everyone. Not, not a reason to really get upset. Was great. And I loved reading through this. The Chicago one was really good. There was a number of other really, really good ones. Cincinnati, just set pieces that are hard, you know, and, and eventually maybe you'll get better at those and, and climb up the playoff standings a little bit. And the DC United one, Ryan, I thought really spoke to me. We, we talked a little bit about Wayne Rooney coming to DC and we still haven't seen him actually coach a game yet. I think that should be coming soon. I don't know for sure, but either way, DC United's reason from Sam was just why you will be sad. You won't be, you don't feel anything. And that's kind of where DC United fans are at right now. Maybe Wayne Rooney will change that, but uh, it's, it's going to be a little bit of a long road for DC United. Indeed. Good stuff. Check it out on backheel.com wherever you get your internet listener. Meanwhile, let's go to listen to questions. Totalsoccershow.com slash questions if you have one for us. We love it when you send them in. Please keep doing so. A great one here from Trevor Peralta. Joe, you're going to like this question. Picture this. Bring it. The USMNT have made it to the World Cup final. You like it already, don't you, Joe? Yeah? Oh, yeah. There we go. Greg Berhalter plays his best starting lineup. But by the 70th minute, the game is still tied at nil-nil. Then, Verhalter unveils his secret trump card, a time machine to bring back any USMNT player in his prime. Who does he bring back and why? In other words, who is the most clutch USMNT player of all time to help USMNT achieve the ultimate glory in the span of around 20 minutes to win that gosh darn World Cup final? Joe, I have one name in my notes. It's Landy Kex. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I assume by Landy Cakes you mean Landon Donovan, Ryan? And if so, explain. Not that you really have to do much explaining here. 
Um, guy who scores lots of goals would be quite useful in the last 20 minutes of a game like this. I mean, is that that's no logic, Joe. That, I'm sticking to it. No, that is that is pretty good, right? I can't lie. I went with the other kind of pillar USMNT figure and, and pillar USMNT goal scorer of Clint Dempsey. He is the guy I'm bringing off in, in a moment like this, bringing on in a moment like this, excuse me. Scored a bunch of goals, just like Landon Donovan, but his... His creativity and his sort of adventurous spirit on the field and his willingness to to not back down from anyone, I kind of want that in the last stages of a World Cup final. Emotions are high, right? It's tense. Players are are feeling it at that point. And Dempsey's a guy who I think can stay calm in the right moments and also flare up in the other moments that you need him to and just add that little bit of sauce of trying stuff to create a chance. So Clint Dempsey is is probably the way that I would lean around. I'm not surprised you went Landon Donovan. I don't really think you can go wrong between either of those two players, and there will sort of be this debate, at least until Christian Pulisic or Gio Reyna or someone else comes up and is very much the U.S.'s best attacker of all time. There will be this debate between them for a very, very long time to come. I think I do lean Dempsey in general based off of his playing style. I have one other actual USMNT answer, but part of me wonders, Trevor's question here is about Baraltar unveiling the secret Trump card, and it's a time machine. Well, I mean, can we think a little bigger here than just going back in time in the immediate past to snag a USMNT player? Part of me, Ryan, wants to, and you can tell me if, if, if Brother should be allowed to do this or not, would be to go back, I don't know, 30-something years or so to Argentina. I'm not advocating to steal a baby, okay, to be very clear. <laughs> but if you could relocate a family for a promising job offer in Miami or somewhere else, I think we could start to talk a little bit here. I would be interested in transplanting Lionel Messi's family by their own desire, if we could find something that worked for everyone, to somewhere in the United States, letting that that whole process grow, eventually getting Messi to to uh, to Barcelona anyway, and then having Baralter go back and snatch this now American Messi who can play for the U.S. Ryan, what do you think of my theory? Should we should we be allowed to do that? Maybe not ethically, but just according to this question. And uh, and if so, I think I, I think I solved it. I, I love that idea, Joe. I love that you thought outside the box in that question. If I remember correctly, Messi was signed to Barcelona from Argentina on a napkin. Yep. A deal was done on yep. a napkin in like a restaurant or something. So you could go back in time, get a bigger napkin, <laughs> and say, this napkin is from like a pickleball place, which does wings and you do pickleball. It's going to be super big in 2022 trust me but you have this and invest in the future bring your son Lionel over and we'll get him playing for the US I think you've done it it, I think it feels it. it feels right doesn't it we might need to workshop that that pickleball pitch just a little bit um but you know what I'm into it I have another question that was sort of on a, a little bit of a rabbit trail wings and pickleball is that a no I played pickleball several times I haven't been to many quote unquote pickleball places are there places that just serve wings and you go out and play pickleball and you have a nice afternoon? I think so. So I've seen these springing up in metropolises all over the States, Joe. Basically, pickleball courts um, and then like a bar with like wings and burgers and stuff attached. Right. Like, okay. Some- so it's top golf, but for but for uh, pickleball, it. right? It's exactly yeah. the crowd they're going for, the top golf crowd. The people who want some exercise, but it doesn't be, have to be too strenuous, I think. And pickleball sure. fits the bill there. It's like uh, there was a place near where I lived in Charlotte where had, which had volleyball courts. You go and play some volleyball in the sun and then have oh, like cool. seven beers to negate all of the <laughs> exercise that you do. Uh, similar thing. Oh, I, risk- I think you should go for the beers first, right? And that makes the volleyball way more entertaining. Or during. Yeah, yeah. Um, the risk <laughs> with the plan, Joe, is that Messi picks up pickleball and and gets really good at that and never plays soccer. Right. Yeah. Yeah, we, we do have to consider that. There's also a chance, I mean, he's, he'll still have Argentinian nationality. Maybe we need to go back a few more generations. Uh, but then things get really dicey as far as, yeah. you know, would, would Messi even be born? So I think we just stick with getting his family to move to the U.S. Um, and we get a bigger napkin and we convince him that way. I think this could be something. My other, right, my other actual answer to this question, another USMNT player who really did play for the USMNT is Eddie Pope, yeah. uh, a center back for the US men's national team, played in MLS for a while. I think I think one of the best center backs of all time for the for the US. He played in three different World Cups. He can contribute on set pieces. He has the experience. So I, I kind of flipped the script a little bit. My first thought was attacker. And then I thought, okay, what if we nick a set piece? What if Baralter has something drawn up and having an aerially dominant center back to partner with Walker Zimmerman and Weston McKenney and, and getting the U.S. another body in the front line in those moments, I think could do some real damage. And I think there's value in having someone like that who can be almost a set piece specialist. And the U.S. kind of already has one 
and maybe even two in Zimmerman and McKinney, but adding Eddie Pope off the bench in the 70th minute just doesn't feel like a bad idea to me at all. Yeah, Carolina's very own, if I'm not mistaken, Eddie Pope. I like that a lot. Boom. Get an 88-minute corner or something and have him uh, yeah, exactly. up. That's great. I like Dempsey as a pick as well because he's got form with scoring in big games with his uh, time with Fulham in Europe as well. Um, Joe, I'll flip the question slightly uh, to potentially catch you unaware, but who is the player who would be the clutch player in the current USMNT setup? Mm. If, if the US needed a goal in the World Cup final in the final 20 minutes, who'd be the guy who is currently selectable? I, I kind of think Weston McKinney is is what I would think of first, is who I would think of first. Again, I, I go back to set pieces. He's also a guy... You know, as the game gets later and later on, I think things get a little more frantic and frenetic and maybe even a little more end-to-end and nil-nil. Maybe that's not the case, but that's sort of how I'm imagining it. Weston McKinney's a guy who's going to nick something on a set piece. He's going to crash the box late and be kind of that third or fourth runner doing that Frank Lampard stuff, right, Ryan? That he's just adding one more body to the box where the defense isn't aware or, or they're not prepared to step to him and actually close him down in time. That's part of the value of those late arriving runs. Weston McKinney makes those runs. He loves to get forward into the box. He can he can uh, drive into those spaces and then receive a cross and either head it home or settle it and, and hit a ball in with either foot. So McKinney taking advantage of a scrambling defense in, in some sort of late arriving run situation feels like a good option to me. The other player I would think about is Tim Weah, and, and maybe he's not first or second choice on the wings. I think after World Cup qualifying, he, he might be. But Pulisic and Reyna are probably more talented players and have higher ceilings. But Weah... I thought was a really reliable presence for the U.S. throughout World Cup qualifying. Really quick feet, skilled on the ball in tight spaces, creates a little bit of separation for himself and kind of just does barely enough to fire off a shot. And for me, that's someone else that I'd be really intrigued for the U.S. bringing off the bench to score at a really important goal in a really important moment because I think he has a skill set that kind of lends himself to the more chaotic, scrambly kind of scenes that you see towards the end of games. I like where your head's at. Trevor, thank you very much for the question. Let's move on to one from Scott McTominay. Okay, (gasps) sure. That one, possibly. We don't know. Either way, the question. (laughs) The most politically charged group in recent World Cup memory just got more interesting as Iran decided to fire their manager and plan to hire a local coach to lead the team in the fall. Um, that situation has changed since Scott on this question. Uh, how does this affect your expectations for Iran heading into the World Cup, as well as your mood for Group B in general? Scott is referring, Joe, to Iran's coach, Dragan Skocic, who was fired and then other stuff happened. Yeah, he was fired and then rehired. And we mentioned this briefly on the show previously. Uh, Iran's... Football Federation right now is a total mess. Also, sorry, Scott, that Graham's not here, so you guys could relate and, and talk Scottish stuff for a while. I apologize for that. Iran's, Iran's Federation is, is just a disaster right now. So they're in the midst of a presidential decision about trying to find someone to fill that job and, and who's going to be the next person to do that. I believe they're about a month away from choosing the next president. Uh, one of their options is Mehdi Taj, uh, who has had that gig before and by all accounts from what I've read, did not do well. And it seems like he might even be the favorite to get that job, which is causing some concern for folks in the media. So there's just generally questions about the direction that Iran is moving right now. They're a talented group on the men's side. There's quality here, and maybe I'll talk about that in just a second. But a lot of the coaching stuff is just uh, is just this whole thing being played out. And, and actually, we're seeing the repercussions of some of the instability that's involved in this country's soccer landscape. So Dragan Skocic, had been coaching this team for a while, and uh, he gets canned basically uh, in the last month or so, and then he gets rehired after a meeting between some bigwigs in in the Iranian Football Federation. He gets rehired, and now he's back. So not exactly the, the stable scene you want when you're less than five months away from the World Cup, but that's exactly what we're getting from Iran right now. In terms of how this affects expectations, and Ryan, I want to hear your thoughts on this too, because England is in this group as well. I almost think barring any... Any coaching hire that has real established success at either the club level or the international level, like a big name hire, I'm thinking a Mancini or or someone in that tier, I'm not sure there's anything that Iran could do, maybe outside of unearthing another player that's a, a global superstar that has eligibility for Iran. I don't think there's anything they could do that would really change my expectations for Iran as a team or for this Group B at the World Cup. It kind of feels like we we know 
who they are. There's not enough time really to change anything drastic between now and November 20, whatever it's going to be. I don't think much of your changes for me. Do you Do you agree? Do you disagree? Where do you fall on all this, Ryan? I, compl- I don't know if I'm being rude about the Iran setup, of which I know the least about any of the teams in Group B, I have to admit, Joe. But... If if this was a if this was at the aquarium, I'd see as an England fan, I'd see the USA and Wales as you know the big great white sharks, and Iran would be a little nursing shark, um, so to speak, if we're going to use that analogy. Um, maybe that's being rude, as I say, but I see the USA and Wales as the biggest threat to England in that group, and I think the mm. USA would probably see England and Wales as the biggest threat as well. Um, it is a very interesting group, though. When you look historically, obviously England's had political beef with all of those nations at some point. Um, we did invent. <laughs> America, though, so you're welcome for that. We'll talk about yeah, that later. Yeah, okay. But um, sure. I think this chaos uh, that Iran are experiencing, not the super stable basis for a campaign that one would expect, as you say, but we have precedent for this at the last World Cup, Joe. If you remember, there was a certain nation who fired their coach two days before the tournament. That nation was Spain. And, oh, uh, my they, goodness, yeah. They, they did top their group. They got to the round of 16. I believe it was Russia who the who were the hosts back when we used to let Russia do sports. Um, that was they, they knocked them out on, was it penalties? I think it went to penalties, that one. Um, so you can triumph in chaos, but for Iran, Joe, I, I've only ever seen them finish fourth in this group. Is that fair? I, I have higher expectations, or at least I think I have more belief in Iran than you do. Um, I think there is real quality in this team. So it, it, it seems like Dragan Skocic is going to be managing this team. He's been rehired, as we said. So it seems like in that way, they'll have at least some continuity, sort of, kind of. There's some players that like him and some players that very much do not like him or haven't liked him in the past. Mehdi Taremi being one of those players who is their star or one of their stars up top. So there are questions about this team, but they are more tactically progressive than they've been in the past. They're willing to possess. They're not built on positional play or, or any really detailed possession philosophy, but they, they will possess under Skocic. They're looking to get their creative wingers touches, and they do have some quality wingers playing in the Eredivisie, in the Premier League, there's there's quality there. And then there's a big focus on getting to Remy, if, if, if and when he's playing, and then Sardar Azman, uh, who plays for Bayer Leverkusen in, in the Bundesliga. There's a big focus on getting those players' touches with their back to goal and sending runners off of them. So I, I've watched a decent bit of footage at this point of Iran. They're not the most organized team, but there is individual quality here to the point where they're good enough we're in a World Cup setting where they can beat anyone on any given day. They are not favorites to win this tournament, and I, I don't really think they're favorites to get out of this group either. But I think it's a much closer size of fish, if we're going to use that analogy, Ryan, between the U.S., Wales, and Iran that a lot of people would like it to be, especially U.S. fans. I think there's a pretty clear top tier in this group, which is England, and I think it's a pretty busy and packed second tier. And again, barring some sort of major change uh, where players decide they don't want to go to the World Cup because they just can't stand Dragon Skocic, or there's a different coach hire that that changes the stock of this team for better or worse. I don't really think that's likely at this point. Barring any of those major changes, I don't think my expectations for Iran change. They could get out of this group as the second team, I think just as likely as the U.S. or Wales. At least that's how I'm thinking about it right now, and I think that's certainly how the U.S. should be thinking about it. Wow, that's crazy. So if you had to, gun to your head right now, Joe, if you had to say where Iran finished in this group, what would you say? I, I would say third or fourth. I think it is more likely, just slightly, that they finish in the bottom two and don't advance than, than they do. I think on talent, the U.S. is the second best team in this group. But it's it's pretty early on in the cycle of talent for the U.S. men's national team. And Wales is maybe on the other side a little bit with some younger players coming through. I think it's likely that they finish in that bottom two, Iran. But again, yeah, I don't want to rule out anything here. I think it is closer than a lot of people want it to be. Yeah, unless we forget, you know, these World Cup groups don't always go the way we predict. They often don't. Yeah, exactly. Uh, case in point, the last World Cup, Germany, fourth in their group, uh, which yeah. we didn't No, I don't think anyone in the world had predicted that. Uh, thank you, Scott, for the question there. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're talking big contracts. Back soon. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes 
and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobeUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Here's a question, Joe, from Richie Garcia. Richie's got in touch. Isn't that great? Um, Richie says, is there a soccer equivalent to the Bobby Vanilla baseball contract? That's a lot of Bs. Um, apparently, Bobby Vanilla, Joe, will be getting paid over a million dollars every year until 2035 when he turns 72. I have to admit, <laughs> I'd never heard of Bobby Vanilla because I do not follow... Um, baseball joke, but uh, I've seen uh, some from looking at it. Some fans refer to these annual payments on July 1st as Bobby Vanilla Day <laughs> because that's when he gets his money. <laughs> and also, the payment was kind of embroiled in the scandal surrounding Bernie Madoff and Ponzi schemes. Right. It's all a little bit murky. Um, I haven't found Joe any players who will be being paid until they are senior citizens, but I have found some long contracts. What did you get for this one? Yeah, so I'm in a similar spot. I had never heard of this Bobby Bonilla thing either. Um, and I, I feel like I kind of let down my American sports fan self by not knowing about this. So I'm really glad that Richie asked this question because this is ridiculous, right? So I'll fill in a little bit of the backstory, Ryan. You kind of already did that. But just to dive a little deeper before I turn it back to you for some contracts that maybe are sort of kind of even maybe slightly similar. In, in 2000, the Mets agreed to buy out the remaining $5.9 million on Bobby Bonilla's contract. And this is from ESPN. Instead of paying him that money at the time, the Mets agreed to make some annual payments. Um, and, and eventually, this started getting stretched and stretched and stretched because their ownership made some bad investments in a Bertie Madoff account, and that, that didn't go according to plan, somewhat unsurprisingly in hindsight. <laughs> and so now they owe him a much larger portion of money, and it's still spread out over a, a much larger portion of time. So he makes like $1.17 million a year and has made it uh, every year for a while now and will make it until 2035, which is just hilarious. Um, I'm sure the Mets aren't super grateful for all that, but they even, I think, have done some marketing around it and, and lean into it a little bit. So in terms of soccer, Ryan, I don't think there are any exact parallels. I'm curious to see what you found here. Joe, I think I've actually just thought of the answer while you were doing the, the background um, explanation there. Thank you very much for that. It sounds like to me that the Mets have pulled a Barcelona by deferring payments. <laughs> it does. It really so does. <laughs> there's a very good chance that Frankie Diog and several other Barcelona t players are going to be paid a certain amount of money until they're 70-something. <laughs> it feels like that could be a thing. <laughs> yeah, PK, when he's president of Barcelona, is going to have to be shelling out that cash to Frankie de Young every single year, and he's going to hate it, <laughs> but he's going to have to do it. Yeah, exactly. In terms of long contracts, the longest I could find, Joe, um, Lionel Messi, the aforementioned, but before he went in the time machine to become a US, US citizen, uh, he signed a nine-year contract with Barcelona in 2005. I think that's the longest or one of the longest player contracts. I think there's some other examples from Spain you may have found. Um, but looking at Spain, they have offered a few life contracts, have Real Madrid and Barcelona. So I found that Raul and Ike Casillas both were given life contracts at Real Madrid in 2008. It wasn't as if they were going to be playing until they were, you know, 70-something. That wasn't the way the life contract worked. They could leave any time they wanted, but it meant they would always have a guarantee of a contract every single year while they chose to do so, while they were playing. And of course, Raul and Icasius both left Madrid. They both went to other teams in the end, so they didn't fulfill their life contracts, but that was on offer for them. Uh, and Barcelona did this once, I found out. They gave one to Andre Iniesta. They gave him a life contract in 2017. He left one year later, so he uh, <laughs> he did not fulfill that life contract either. So they're, they're more symbolic, I think, Joe. It's mainly, mainly you, you're part of the furniture here. You are very yeah. much loved. You can be here as long as you want to be. Uh, those are the kind of contracts uh, I found. Did you Did you manage to find anything else? Yeah, I found a couple other really long ones. No other life contracts. Those those ones in Spain were the ones I found as well. According to Marca, for that Iniesta one, there was a clause in Iniesta's contract that he could go and play soccer in a lesser league, which is kind of what ended up happening when he goes yeah. to Japan and plays for Vissel Kobe there. And well, so well, they could call any yeah, league a lesser league, couldn't they? Right. That's true. That's true. Maybe I think the idea is, and, and maybe there was more specific language in the actual contract, but yeah. you're not going to go and play Champions League soccer for somebody else, right? I don't think that's that's what anybody was looking for. Okay. And the reality was at that time that probably wasn't going to happen Super anyway league for Iniesta, soccer? given where he was in his career. Super League soccer is a different matter. That is fair <laughs> game. So just interesting to see some of the intricacies here. And we even talked about, Ryan, I think it was a listener question show. It might have been Soccer 101, but some other just really weird contracts in the past and contract clauses. And there's all sorts of 
uh, idiosyncrasies in some of these contracts. So I always think this stuff is fascinating. Saul for Atletico Madrid, or, or once an Atletico Madrid player, signed a nine-year deal back in 2017, and, and that was pretty big deal at the time and Saul ends up moving to Chelsea and, and not actually sticking around at Atletico Madrid for all of that contract before the deal is up. So another example of a long contract that a player doesn't make it all the way through. And Aki Williams is another one for uh, Bilbao who hasn't actually played nine years yet. This was, I believe, back in 2018 that he got himself a nine-year deal. So some pretty long contracts here. Uh, and, and there is benefits and risk to signing long-term deals. There's a reason why we don't usually see d- deals this long. A lot can happen in the life of that deal. But still, interesting to see some very light tie-ins to Bobby Bonilla. And maybe, Ryan, as you said, that'll be Frankie de Jong in a decade or so. <laughs> I think so. And a couple of honorable mentions, Joe, for managers as well. Um, David Moyes famously given a six-year contract when he signed on at Manchester United. We could see the intent behind that. They were trying to have a successor to Alex Ferguson, who was there for a couple decades. They wanted that contract kind of long-term look, which is laughable when we look at what Man United have done since that point. But he was being paid on that contract when they'd moved two managers on from him. So that was wonderful. Uh, And the other manager one, uh, the famous one, is Alan Pardew at Newcastle. I don't know if you remember, Joe, in 2012, he was given an eight-year deal, which for a club like Newcastle was kind of insane. He was paid uh, through 2020. He left in 2014 to go to Crystal Palace. So... um, yeah, not some wonderful business from Newcastle United and not the first time they have done some not wonderful business, I would suggest. Richie, thank you very much for that question. I, I would love to know if there are any... Listener, if you have any examples of Bobby Bonilla-style contracts, do let us know. But I think that was as deep as we could go on that one. Steve Hidalgo has got in touch, who says, When watching games as a fan, whether in person or on TV, do you have any rituals? Uh, for example, do you have a specific meal or a drink? Do you buy a certain souvenir at each stadium, etc., and so on? Um, it's a shame Graham's not here because I imagine he has yeah. maybe 50 or 60 <laughs> rituals for every single game and he watches several games a day. Um, I, was gonna, I was thinking about this question, Joe. I'm not, I don't think I'm a ritual guy in general. And then the more I thought about it, I have loads of rituals that I do. Yeah, you, I already can think of at least one, yeah. but yeah, keep going. Like... When I board a plane, I always touch the outside of the plane. I don't know why. It doesn't mean anything. Like when I'm, you know, climbing in, always have to give it a tap as if to say, yep, this this vehicle is good for me. I, I'm, I'm uh, yep. happy to jump inside. Pass inspection. Thing. We are good to fly, <laughs> exactly. folks. Exactly. It gets the tap inspection. Uh, and also, if I'm doing a race of any kind, like a marathon or a 10K or anything, I will never look behind me. I don't know why. It's just this little rule I have. Huh. Only look forwards. Never look. No, no, don't look back, which sounds a bit pathetic, really. But there's little things like that I do as rituals. But when it comes to like going to a stadium, I think when I was a kid, I would always maybe have like fries and a burger and like the same thing every week because that was like a treat from my dad, basically. But uh, I don't think I have a solid ritual at a stadium. The only thing I can think of at home is having my laptop or at the very least having a phone for the old second screen experience. I think I, I, for better or worse, Joe, I'm a, I'm a big advocate of second screen experience. So obviously for doing what we do with this podcast and doing the kind of work I do, it's good to make notes on games. Um, so there's a professional aspect to it, but also I love being on social media during a game, especially if it's a game. <laughs> most games I watch on TV are from a neutral perspective. So they like get the, to join in on the banter to try and be funny when I know I'm not and that kind of thing. Um, I, I enjoy that part of the game and that, that interaction. It's not, it's not a ritual, but that's kind of something I'll sure. always do. So I'll, I'll hand the floor to you, Joe. Well, one other ritual for you, Ryan, that I was thinking of when you mentioned at first, I don't really have any, and then you thought of a few as you were as you were prepping for this question. You you run, or at least you did for a while before England would play, right? And you would you would run and listen to the Three Lions every morning, at least during the Euros. I don't know if that's still happening or if that'll happen at the World Cup, but that's that's the first one that I thought of for either one of us regarding this question. That's another one. And Joe, I would say I would be doing that during this current Euro 2022 as we record, but I'm injured at the moment. I'm not running at all, ah, so I'm very upset. What happened? Uh, uh, I've got a, I'm very old, so I've got Achilles issues. But it's a long story, but. Ah. Um, Basically, the three lions uh, who, uh, the lionesses, I should say, excuse me, uh, are through to the final without my help yep. so far. So I'm not worried about Which is them. shocking, really, that they've managed to do that without Ryan Bailey's runs and his, <laughs> his three lions playing. So I can't believe they've done it. Frankly, it's the underdog story of the, tw- of the summer Indeed. and of this tournament. As far as my rituals go, I'm, I'm definitely not a ritual guy. I don't have 
really specific routines. There, there are things that I fall into as far as watching games that are all kind of sad and, and worky because that's what we do for work. So I was trying to think of things that I would do as a fan, and I haven't been to many soccer games as a fan before because I, I tend to go to games for what I do for my job. But going to a game as a fan, I've been to some Phoenix Rising games as a fan before, and I always really enjoy walking, and this is also true when I'm there to work a game. I really enjoy walking through the concourse to try and learn something about the stadium, to learn about its history a little bit, or if I know someone else that's going to be at the game, to have them sort of walk me through, okay, when was the stadium built? What I mean, what do we know about it, right? It's just to get that in-person experience of learning more about the area and its soccer culture and about the, the stadium itself. I went to Providence Park and got to look around and, and just sort of got to, to meet a, a few different folks there and, and just learn about the stadium, and it's a really unique one that I think has more history and, and depth to it than most other stadiums in the U.S. But uh, Drew Olson from American Soccer Analysis showed me around, and it was just a really cool experience. And then we both ended up walking like six inches away from Chris Wondolowski, but not recognizing him in time. So that was, that was super cool. But either way, I like to learn more about the stadium where I am, and that's, that's kind of the only ritual I have in an actual stadium. Then it's just going back up and, and thinking about what I'm going to write or what I'm going to talk about and, and watch the game and focus on that. As far as from home, um, if I'm watching a game for fun as a fan and I don't have to talk about it, on, and we're not going to talk about it on TSS, or, or we are, but maybe in a different way, I like to lay on the floor. I don't know where this came from. I like to stretch out and watch and just kind of really – enjoy the experience on, and i don't like, pump the brakes i know like on your back or on your side yeah on, on my back yeah what? so like two pillows up by my head so my my i'm not having to crane my neck and actually exercise in any way during this experience and then i'm just laying flat on the ground and for some reason i like being close to the tv i think that's part of it i have uh i have glasses but i don't know i still feel like my eyesight really lets me down sometimes so i'm close to the tv which i like and i like stretching out and and relaxing so for some reason the floor checked all those boxes there's there's a carpet usually so it's not like i'm straight on the tile or the the wood so i like to lay on the floor if it's for if it's for work i'm going to be sitting up and i'm going to have my computer and i'm going to be rewinding and fast forwarding and and just double checking things and taking furious notes and that's not like thrilling or really a ritual it's just kind of what i have to do for from my job so that's the the rough spectrum of kind of what i end up doing during different kinds of soccer games and, and different ones that we're covering or not covering um do, so at the end of the show, we're going to give out the GoFundMe to get Joe a couch. Um, but that's very interesting. Um, there there any- is a couch. I just have I just have forsaken it for the floor at times. Not every time, but sometimes. Okay. So I don't know if Steve was expecting something grander than the examples we've given. Do you have any rituals or superstitions outside of soccer, Joe? No, no, I'm not. I'm not a ritual or superstition guy. I don't. I don't really put any stock in any of that stuff. Do you, Ryan? Just just touching the plane. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> yep, that's metal. We are good to fly, folks. Those are riveted in properly. And I'll always do it, and there's absolutely no reason, Joe. <laughs> All right, let's take a quick break. Thank you, Steve, for that question. When we come back, we're going to be talking about referees. We're going to be talking about fantasy sports and much, much more. Back shortly. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. 
Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Question here from Tevin Tippett. Alliteration at its finest, Joe. I like that name a lot. Uh, with many pro players looking for other positions in the sport as they get older, why don't any players become referees after their playing careers? Are there any examples of this happening? Could they improve the standard of refereeing if more players were to get the education and then use their knowledge from playing in this new position? Or not playing officiating i'd say rather tevin there but yeah uh, a very very good question something i've not really thought about joe um i dug into it and there was a guardian knowledge article which is a Always an excellent source of information. Their regular knowledge columns where people write in and ask questions like they do to us um, of a podcast. Um, there was a, a fella called Dick Yall, who was a referee of a high standard. He refereed the 2001 Champions League final. He was a Dutchman. He played for NEC Nimengen in Holland. I've probably completely butchered that. He also played in Belgium as well. There were a couple of lower league examples, Joe. But as far as I could see... We've never seen like, I don't know, totties and big players, top, top, top team players who've gone on and decided I'd like to still be involved in the game, but I'm going to do it as a referee. And I wonder why that is, Joe. Do you think it's because most players have spent their professional lives arguing with referees and find themselves diametrically opposed to the position that referees hold? Maybe it's that. I, I, that is one of the explanations I had down as, as a possible reason why we don't see this happen because it, it really doesn't happen a whole lot. Ryan, I read that same article, and there's some names way back in the, the 19th century. There's a couple names in the 20th century, and Ryan, you mentioned some, some recent one there. But we don't see this happen a lot, and certainly not with big-name players, right? That just does not happen. And I think there could be a, a few reasons behind this, one of them being maybe they just don't like referees and realize, wow, I, I don't want to do that job. I've never liked referees. I don't think of it in, in a fond light. It's not something that excites me. I think that's a very real possibility. Another one that maybe is the main reason, I think, is being a referee just isn't all that glamorous. If you're a player with any sort of name recognition, going going to be a referee takes time and it's it's a longer process to make it up through the ranks before you're refereeing at any real level that's going to make you money and and maybe money isn't the the prime focus of a lot of these former players but I do think it is a consideration for a lot of these these folks and in terms of glamour and in uh, just prestige that's attached to a job I think a player could go 
uh, and work a media gig or go and become an agent, which we do see happen, or, or potentially even a coach, and they would make more money and, and certainly be in just a higher profile role for most of that career relative to if they went to become a referee. I think there's a pretty big gap between the prestige associated with those things. Agents are, are more behind the scenes. I get that. But you still are talking with some pretty high-profile people. You're still in some pretty important circles within soccer. So I think those are some of the reasons why we don't see that happen more often. Ryan, do those hold water to you? I don't know. I don't know. It, it, I, don't, I don't really know the answer to this mm. question. But I think those are some potential reasons why. I, they do hold water for me, Joe. The other reason may be I wonder if there's potential conflict. Let's say, I don't know, Danny Drinkwater wants to become a referee. But then they say, oh, you can't referee Leicester games. You can't referee Chelsea games. You can't referee Aston Villa because that right. thing that happened in that game. You can't referee that team because you did that yeah, against them. Yeah, that's a great so point. There's probably a bunch of conflicts that will come up or people would find them if they wanted to find them. So Yeah, that- and, and we talked, Ryan, we talked about that in Soccer 101 recently, right? We did a whole deep dive into referees, which is really helpful for me when thinking about this episode. So I'd encourage folks to go back and listen to that in the Soccer 101 feed. And one of the things that we talked about on that show is if a referee has some sort of vested interest, right? There's this whole vetting process in England and around the rest of the world as well. There's this whole vetting process about diving into the, the referee's background, where they're from, what their, what their professed fandom is and what that looks like and what clubs they enjoy and what incidents they've had in the past in various uh, games or, or various teams that have, that have been affected by some decisions that maybe haven't gone well. And they're referees that don't go back to a ground for years and years that are not assigned those games by design because the the association that governs those referees doesn't want to have to deal with that and it's not a good situation to put those people in. So with players who played for likely three, four, five different clubs over the course of their careers who have played against a ton more clubs and have had likely difficult incidents along the way at several stops, it does certainly limit the number of games they could referee, Ryan. That's a really good point. Yeah, and I wonder, Joe, if soccer associations should make a more concerted effort to recruit former players. Not necessarily superstars, but, you know, uh, second and third division players. Like, the, one of the biggest criticisms of referees is they, they, they don't know how to... Ju- you hear players saying, you know, they've never played the game. They don't understand. They don't understand that tackle. They don't understand that play because they've never actually played the game get some former players then they would understand sure. i think that would be a really really good idea it would make total sense to me so i don't know if there's if there is any impetus for soccer associations to do that but i'm, I'm all for it frankly i like it too and we see with coaching badges which we've also talked about recently on soccer 101 former players who have played at a certain level can expedite their process to get their badges they can jump up two or three rungs ahead of everyone else, which I I do think makes a lot of sense because they have the background and experience, at least at a baseline level. Not that every former player is going to be a good coach and not that every former player would be a good referee either, but you could go and, and maybe skip some levels here and expedite their training process to allow former players to just use the experience they have and the knowledge they have. It's not a perfect switch there and I would argue that maybe it's even a, a better transition from playing to coaching than it is from playing to referee in terms of the the background of skills but yeah Ryan I think that could certainly improve the quality of the refereeing pool and it would give more perspective to people in that job yeah so Tevin to answer your question there are few examples of this happening players uh, converting to referees and we think it probably could improve the standard of refereeing but hey Joe and I aren't kings of the world we can't quite make that happen but uh, Tevin thank you very much there well we're not yet the kings of the world I suppose yeah we're working on it this time time. all right Tevin thank you very much that question we go from Tevin Tippett's Joe to Derek Dickinson oh Uh, yeah alliteration all over the place alliteration station that's what we'll call this segment Uh, my (laughs) friends are getting serious about fantasy Premier League this year says Derek and I'm going to do it for the first time what advice do you have and where should I go for weekly info Derek my advice to you don't do it. Run away. <laughs> do something else. That's a, that's that's where I'm at, Joe. Over to you. Why? Explain. Explain, Ryan. Okay, I'm being a little bit facetious. Uh, it is a it is a big investment in your time. I've done fantasy for as long as I can remember. I first started doing fantasy, Joe, because I'm this old. In the 1990s, when you had to do it from a newspaper, the London Times, were the, or I think, or maybe it's the Telegraph, were the first to do it, and used to literally pick out names from tiny columns on the newspaper and like mail it in. That was the first fantasy I did, and I've done it ever since. Uh, and I, I've moved on in recent years to draft fantasy, which I think is a superior game. We can get onto that later if we like. But um, I don't have an awful lot of advice, if I'm being completely frank, Joe, with where to go for sources of info, because um, 
if I was picking my NFL fantasy team, I don't know the NFL as well as I know soccer. So I'd use Fantasy Sharks and I use a bunch of sites which I will religiously go to every week. Uh, but for, for Premier League, I think my best advice is to watch a bunch of Premier League. Watch as many games as you can. Watch as many highlights as you can. Absorb the info. Maybe even, you know, go on FopMob and go on um, statistical sites to learn a bit more about players you have particular interest in. But in terms of, like, I don't know if there's any, like, sites I go to for, like, pickups this week or who are the busts this week or anything. Maybe I'm just a fiddly-duddy old-fashioned person, though, Joe. I think you'll see some of that coverage in, in certain soccer publications. I think The Athletic might have some fantasy Premier League coverage and, and there, that might be a decent spot to in go. In which case you should definitely go di- there. Right. Yeah, I mean I don't I don't dive into much of that either. My recommendation would be would be similar. Watch a lot of games and it kind of depends on the format that you're playing here, right? So there's weekly and then you can also go and and draft before the season. It kind of sounds like from the question that that Derek is looking at the weekly format. Yeah. I would recommend trying to stay up to date. Look at who's playing, who's not playing. There's a lot of different websites. I use FBref a ton and can't really recommend it enough. I think they're a really valuable resource. They have match logs for players that look at when they're playing, when they're not playing. They'll go back through and, and look at the, the numbers, and there's a ton of data there provided for you, and it's all free. It's it's pretty intuitive to use, I think, at least you'll get the hang of it pretty quickly, and there's a lot of good info there. Transfer Market is another one. There's a ton of info on that site. I don't put really any stock in their market values, which is kind of the, their whole big thing, but in terms of of looking at trends and, and minutes and diving into, there's just tables and a whole bunch of information. Again, I think pretty intuitive to use and that can help you learn more about players and their backgrounds and also can help you stay up to date on, on when they're playing, when they're not playing and how they're playing as well. So those are a couple of the resources that I use for all sorts of different soccer research things. FB Ref and Transfer Market, I think are, are really valuable in that way. It does take time. Like like playing fantasy sports does take time. And so I hope, Derek, that you enjoy it. I, I haven't found myself with the time to do that or with the, the energy to do that. I did a draft league for a couple of years, and that was fun. But I always sort of ended up 10 weeks in having given up unintentionally because I just forget about it. So don't don't forget. I think it can be really, really fun, and I like the weekly format as well. Um, just, yeah, try to watch a bunch of soccer. Check out a couple of the sites that I mentioned, and, and I, I think you'll do well. At least I hope you'll do well, Derek. Yeah, we hope so. Uh, Graham's probably tearing out his hair, having been someone who works in fantasy and who literally runs fantasy contests as well. So he, he might have some insight on this as well. But I, I, I echo your uh, your thoughts there, Joe. I think if I was looking for stats, whether it be for fantasy or otherwise, my big three, I tend to go to uh, Who Scored, Soccer Way and FopMob. Because um, sure. FopMob is a, 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 a surprise contender in the last few seasons, I would say, as well, for, for, for the stats they provide. And they've got some really good stuff, particularly on MLS as well. Um, so yeah, that that would be my my advice as well for Derek. And I was being a bit facetious at the start. Do play fantasy; it is a lot of fun, and it gets you into. It's another way to get you into the game. It's another way to get you invested in the game on a weekly basis. So uh, yeah, very good stuff. Uh, and get in touch if you want any more info about that, Derek. Thank you very much, uh, Joe. We are nearly at the end of the show, but we have one bonus little fun question. Would you like to hear it? Bring it on, Ryan. It's from Aircraft E, who got in touch with us recently. I think I suggested E was for engineer. Um, Aircraft E has said it does not stand for engineer. It's just the first initial of his last name. He's sorry to disappoint us on that. But I'm just going <laughs> to imagine the last name is engineer. Then we're both right. So um, That works. Yeah, very good. Um, uh, Aircraft Engineer says, I've got another question for you all. I'm a big fan of sports branding. A good kit and crest can go a long way. For instance, I think Austin FC have an elite combination. I'd love to know what you guys consider your favorite crests and logos in soccer. Once again, another question I think Graham would thrive out here, but I think we uh, we have some excellent opinions too. I'm going to start the ball rolling, Joe. I'll say Austin FC, I completely agree, is a very good, yeah, a good uh, one. nomination. I'm going to start in Mexico with Pumas, um, who have, of course, the giant Puma, on, or Puma, if you want to use the UK pronunciation, on the front of their uh, jerseys. Sponsors sort of top and tailing it to make to pay respect to the giant Puma, basically. Uh, and it looks like, a Tony Stark Puma, I think is the best way to describe it. It's kind of Iron Man-esque. Yeah, it is, and yeah. The only disappointing <laughs> thing about that combo and about that shirt, Joe, is that it's, I believe, currently made by Nike and not Puma. Mm, almost, almost nailed the synergy across all fronts there. I really do love the Pumas kit as well. I, I didn't have that one on my list. There are too many. I just stick, I just stayed inside the US for mine. But Ryan, this, this is so good. And 
we're going to get to watch Danny Alves wearing that Pumas kit yeah. going forward because he signed recently for Pumas from Barcelona. So that'll be interesting to watch as well. It's a really sharp look. I like the kit. I like the kit probably more than I like the crest. The crest is cool. It's just really dark colors. It's like a very dark gold and a, and a very dark blue. Yeah. And it doesn't stand out quite as much as I'd like it to. But, man, you, you really can't go wrong with the Puma, and they lean so far into that branding. I like it a lot, Ryan. Excellent stuff. Another one I'm going to nominate, another MLS nomination for me, Joe, into Miami. I love a pink mm. kit. I think the flamingos on that badge and the M shape and all that jazz, I think it looks fantastic. That is an elite combo for me as well. I like the the crest. I still don't love the jersey. I, I'm happy they finally leaned into a pink kit for this season. It still is like this this light pink, and I, I feel like they could really go a couple of shades darker. Maybe I'm splitting hairs here. I love the collared look that they show sometimes. I really do like a lot of what's going on there. It's not quite all the way there for me in my top tier, but I, I really do like it a lot, Ryan. I think, yeah, the pink this year is an improvement. I agree with that, Joe. Much, much, uh, yeah. Because last year, it, because as soon as you sweat, which you tend to do in Southern Florida, um, you could just see the GPS bra instantly, and it looks quite odd, I think, with those shirts um one more i'll give you joe uh boca juniors who of course play in blue and yellow that kind of yellow uh, hoop i think we call that going through the middle of the kit but their crest the cabj embossed on the gold shield yeah, with the gold cool. stars and the blue background that's one of my all-time favorite crests I, I love blue and yellow because that's the colors of my team as well i think that is a fantastic combination too that one's really, really good. I, I almost have no notes for that. It's classic, and it's still, I think it's aged very, very well. So yeah, Ryan, I'm all about that. Do you have any more before I go into mine? I'll give you one more then. I'll give you one more, and I'll bring be biased it. because it is ASU Wimbledon, my team, and obviously I'm very, very biased towards that. But um, obviously we play in blue and yellow as well, and I don't know if you've thoroughly inspected the crest of Wimbledon, Joe, but it is a black double-headed eagle so it kind of you might think it's a phoenix but it's an eagle with two heads and that is in reference to a local legend in Wimbledon that Julius Caesar once made camp on Wimbledon Common like the the grass area in Wimbledon and that symbol was on Julius Caesar's coat of arms so I love that the soccer team hundreds of years later has that on their crest even though it's just local legend it was never confirmed that Julius Caesar actually came and made camp like <laughs> in Wimbledon so that's fantastic but it looks pretty badass in my opinion the uh, the double-headed eagle and uh, AFC Wimbledon kits are in the news this week as we speak Joe I don't know if you saw um, so Hummel who are a wonderful kit maker released the home kit a few weeks ago which is blue and yellow uh, yesterday as we record they released the away kit which is blue and yellow they are nigh identical, slightly different shades of blue and a gold in kind of instead of a yellow. But the internet having their way, looking at these kits saying, dude, your, your away kit is the same color as your home kit. How is that going to work, <laughs> practically speaking? And there's now been a third kit, Joe, which is in a, a red uh, kit with green trim. So I think the only potential clash there'll be in league play is if uh, Wimbledon draw Crystal Palace in the cup Um or if by some circumstance managed to play Barcelona, that's not going to happen. But uh, if they play a team in blue and red stripes, then they are out of luck. <laughs> but um, yeah, then they're then they're in a tough spot yeah, then, for sure. Then they're just playing in their underpants. I think is how they'll be forced to play. Like if you forgot your gym kit when you're in school. Oh, that's what we, we did go. in the school anyway. Things might have changed. But Joe, I'll <laughs> hand over to you. Yeah, I like the the Wimbledon crest a lot, Ryan, and I think just one empire respects another. You know, yeah. I think that's that's really what we're at here. Yeah. So, as far as the the crest that I really like, and, and some of these have good jerseys to go along with them, the Portland Thorns in the NWSL, I think have one of, if not the best crest in all of American soccer. So it's this red circle, and I, I love the circular shape, and it has Portland Thorns written around it, um, sort of Portland on the top and Thorns on the bottom, curved as the circle curves. And then it has this ring of thorns right inside. It's like three different layers of, of visuals inside the logo. There's Portland thorns on the outside. Then there's the, the ring of thorns. And then there's the actual rose, what looks like a flower on the inside. And I, I love the colors. It's this deep red. And it, it goes really well, I think, with the kit. One of the kits they have this year especially, it's a black kit with, you can see the roses that are just a, a lighter shade of gray coming up from it with a dark red font. I, I think it is one of the best combinations, if not the best. In American soccer, I love that one. So that's the first one. My next one, I'm, I'm diving into the USL at this point, is the Oakland Roots, who I believe both of these, these next two that I'm going to say were designed by Matthew Wolf, who's done a ton of branding for all sorts of clubs across American soccer. 
He's, I think, the one of the most well-known designers in, in the U.S. In, in sports, certainly in soccer. The Oakland Roots have just an incredibly good crest as well. It's another circle, which I'm a sucker for. You have Oakland Roots across the top, the top half of the circle, almost in its own semicircle. Then you have a tree underneath with roots coming down below the ground, which is the bottom half of the circle. And it's all sorts of these different colors and, and jagged lines, and it just is a phenomenal crest. The jerseys I don't like quite as much, but the crest is still on them, and so I can't really complain. And then my last one, Ryan, is Union Omaha, who have the owl, who I just think is sensational. He's staring right into your soul, a lot of angular lines. This is maybe more of a, a traditional crest shape. Uh, it looks like it could be on some sort of shield, if we still had shields in, in modern times that you'd carry into battle. But the owl is, the, the bird is just staring right into your soul, and I, I can't stop looking back at him. And so I think I have to put that one on my list, too. That is a wonderful nomination. And that's reminding me, Joe, of the team who actually played Union Omaha last night, Ford Madison. Uh, we yeah, have neglected to mention, I mentioned Flamingos on a different kit, but um, they've leaned heavily into kit culture and uh, with their various designs and the way they use the pink and the blue. Big fan of what our friends in Wisconsin are doing. Yeah, I'm right there with you, Ryan. Lots of, good, lots of good branding in American soccer and in the lower divisions too. I think it's been a really cool push that we're seeing to be unique and to put out something that is special and quality instead of just rushing out some sort of design. And I think that's done a, a lot of really good things for some of these lower division teams. Yeah. A wonderful sur- surrogate for promotion. Uh, good branding, Joe. <laughs> I think you agree. Yeah. Oh, 100%. 100%. <laughs> Indeed. All right. That wraps up listener questions, Joe. Once again, totalsoccershow.com slash questions if you want to get in touch with us. Thank you so much, listener, for sticking with us on this one. And Joe Lowry, thank you very much for your expertise. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. Keep tapping those planes, all right? I will keep tapping those planes. Thank you very much, listener. We'll be back on the feed very shortly. But for now, bye. Bye.